I'm reading from a different version of the Bible than I normally use because uh, I think this version, the New American Standard Bible, uh, really just states the, the intent of this part of the psalm in a very sweet and compelling way. This is, a, um, this is the Bible that I cut my teeth on. It was the New American Standard Bible. That was the first Bible my mom gave me after I was born again in high school, the New American Standard and I've always loved it, but it's very, very, very literal. Uh, we used to, in seminary, we'd call it English as it is never spoken. So it's a little clunky sometimes. But uh, Psalm 109, verses 20 and 21. But you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake. Because your loving kindness is good, deliver me, for I am afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. Oh, Father, that's the reality of all of us at one point in time or another in our lives, and for many of us, that's the ongoing reality of our lives. That is what defines our lives, that our hearts are wounded within us. We are afflicted and needy. Life is very painful, and you are the one who can teach us and heal us. So we ask that you would do that now, Father. And we just pray for your word, your book to live in the lives of your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, in the, in the last few weeks, um, we've been discussing justification and sanctification. Uh, those are two Bible doctrines that have to do with distinct activities of God working in our lives to bring our salvation first into existence and then to bring it to fruition. And just briefly, justification is a judicial decree of God whereby God declares us and counts us to be righteous in His sight upon the condition that we exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ and are born again. And as Reformed and Presbyterian Christians, we believe that the Scripture teaches that even the saving faith that we exercise when we believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ is a gift from God. We believe that's the, the force of the, of the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, where it, it talks about um, you have been saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. It is the gift of God. It's not just the grace that's the gift of God. It's actually the faith that you need to apprehend the grace that is also a gift of God. And so God says, I will declare you to be righteous forever the minute you believe savingly on Jesus and trust Jesus, and I will give you the faith that you need to believe savingly on Jesus because you'll never be able to come up with it on your own. Now, that's justification. Sanctification is a process. And it's a process that we engage in together with God that changes us. And in sanctification, the grace and energy of God is infused into us in such a way that when we cooperate with it, we are by degrees transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And another Bible name for undergoing this lifelong work of sanctification is simply discipleship. When I talk about spiritual formation, that's really just a substitute term 
for the word discipleship. And the reason that that substitute term came into being is because the devil is always working to get a hold of words and to start changing their meaning so that the people of God kind of lose focus and are distracted away from something that God wants to do. And so that word discipleship became associated by well-meaning people, uh, became associated with a lot of things that were just not helpful, that were legalistic and narrow and cranky and everything else. And, and so this, this word, this term spiritual formation came about. But it's, all this is, is the disciplined, methodical pursuit of sanctification, and particularly in a group setting. And it's more helpful, actually, to be doing these things in community with other people. Um, and, like, you know, just as a, for instance, we've had a, a spiritual formation class that's been meeting on Wednesdays now for, uh, we're going into our fourth year, I believe. And, and uh, it's just been wonderful. The community has ebbed and flowed with different members coming in and out at different times. But, but it's been a place of just sweet fellowship and great growth. It's a place where you can be honest about the things that you're struggling with. And other Christians can go, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do that too. And here's what helped me. And you can pray for each other and you can know each other. And we've got another group that's uh, coming to fruition. It's been meeting uh, a little less time. Um, but in, in my house on Monday nights. And you are invited to come to any of these groups. You, we're not meeting through the summer, but when they start again in the fall, you are invited. Now, two weeks ago, we discussed the issue of assurance of salvation. The, the question that you need to ask yourself and that the Bible tells you you need to ask yourself is, how do I know if I'm really saved? And the reason that it's important to ask yourself that question is because Jesus himself says in Matthew 7 that there will be, and he says, many who come to him on judgment day declaring some sort of connection with him and service in his name, and they will be utterly shocked to hear Jesus say, off to hell with you, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. You were always a pretender. You were always the weeds, the tares among the wheat. And he tells us how to know which group that we are in. In the verse immediately before that, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or to put it another way, the reliable evidence that we have been justified, which is a decree by a holy judge in the courtroom of heaven and doesn't change us, is that we are being sanctified or that we are being changed by degrees into the likeness of Christ. Because those two things always occur together. The, the grace that causes justification also causes sanctification. And if there's no if there's no sanctification, there's no reason to be confident that there's been justification at all. Or we can state it the way Jesus did in John 15. Jesus said, I'm, I'm the vine and you're the branches and the branches in me that are, that are in me that bear much fruit glorify God and God prunes them to get even more fruit off of them. But there are also branches that don't bear fruit and God cuts those branches off and throws them into the fire to be burned. And how are the true branches known, Jesus says? By the bearing of God-glorifying fruit. Now, 
you got to ask yourself, what is the fruit that God is after? Well, I believe that's the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those who are going to enter the kingdom are those who are known as those who do the will of the Father. So how are the justified known? They are undergoing sanctification. So the next question that we have to wrestle with is, okay, if I'm supposed to show sanctification, and that's what God is working in me, but it's a process i got to cooperate with, what does sanctification look like? And the devil can run riot and has run riot through the church on just this issue. Because it's very easy to substitute for true righteousness and godliness something that Jesus called the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so you end up with people who are angry, legalistic, narrow, highly, doing highly visible things that seem to mark professing Christians in places where they are theoretically concerned with holiness. Um, or, and this is the, the route I took, um, it's, to, it's to master finer and finer understandings of a system of doctrine. Uh, along with a, a prideful and an arrogant and a judgmental rejection of anyone who in any way deviates from what you have decided the truth is. No, no. That is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. True sanctification is marked by two things. First of all, a joyous obedience to the moral law of God that grows out of the love of God and the love of neighbor. And we find a brief summary of that moral law of God in the Ten Commandments, so our lives won't be marked by lying or stealing. Our lives won't be marked by murder or even anger and rage. Our lives won't be marked by adultery or even lust. We will be sincere worshipers of God. We will not misuse God's name. We will not misuse the day that God has set aside for a day of worship and rest as a great gift to us, Jesus said, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So true, true sanctification is marked by a joyous obedience to the law of God that grows out of the love of God and the love of neighbor and a manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians 5. So if I could sum it up like this, a sanctified life, the, the, the life that we want, is a good and beautiful life in the presence of a good and beautiful God, lived out with each other in a good and beautiful community. And this is the way of peace and rest. Even in the midst of, of work and activity, it's a life of joy, even in the midst of sorrow. It's the way of truth. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way of patience and kindness. It's the way in which you can count on your brother or your sister to share your burdens with you when you cannot bear them alone. They are just too heavy. This is the way of gentleness and tenderness and deep love. It's not weak. It is strong as iron. But it's good. And it doesn't hurt. Now, that doesn't come from simply trying harder. It comes when we train our souls by walking together with Jesus Christ 
It's something that we learn how to do. Listen carefully to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, and listen with, with new ears if you possibly can, because this, this is just one of the, I think this is one of the sweetest verses in the Bible. I'm just infatuated with this passage. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Can there be any more gentle and beautiful invitation to a life that is just good? And I don't mean good in a, in a weird way. I mean just deeply good in a relaxed, God-glorifying way where people look at you and they say, man, you've got something going on. And I, I like it. I'm attracted to it. Would you tell me how you changed into this kind of person? Discipleship is being yoked to Jesus in his yoke. Now, if you don't understand, uh, and, and you know, we, we live in Amish country, so that's actually kind of helpful. A, a yoke is a device for hitching two animals together so that they can pull a load, a wagon or a plow or something like that. The, the animals are usually oxen or horses. And when a handler has to train a young animal so that it learns how to pull a load, he yokes it together with a mature, experienced animal, and that inexperienced animal learns what to do by walking with the experienced animal. Now, we don't see that very much anymore. I'll tell you the one place where you can see it, if you watch those shows about uh, the weirdos in Alaska who like living way out in the boondocks with no power, and, and a lot of them use sled dogs. And so they're constantly in the process of training these sled dogs. And they'll take a puppy, a new dog, and they'll put him in the back of the, of the sled dog team. And he learns from being back there what to do. And eventually the mature ones, they, they come out and they take the lead. And they become the lead dog. And it's a, the lead dog is the most valuable dog in that sled dog team. But they learn by, by being yoked together with the other animals. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Discipleship is being yoked to Jesus in his yoke. And it's to learn from him how to live. Now, it's important to understand that the, that the yoke is his yoke. And you are invited to join him. And his yoke is set up to pull his load. And that's the load that he promises you will be easy and light and the way of rest for your soul. Now, the reason why that's important to understand is that you and I have a self-imposed load. And that load is killing us. And we took our load upon ourselves. And, and very often that load consists in either trying to make things happen that we really have very little control over or trying to keep things from happening that we have very little control over. Maybe it involves your husband or your wife. Maybe it involves your children or a parent. Maybe it involves work or money or your health. And that's your burden. And it obsesses you. And it's crushing you. Hear me carefully. 
Jesus is not offering to join you in carrying your self-imposed burden. He's asking you to trust him with your burden and to lay it down and then come join him in his yoke. He's offering to let you join him in his burden. And that's the burden, he says, will be an easy and a light burden. Not because the burden is light in and of itself. It's actually tremendously heavy, but he's carrying almost all of it. You see, he promises you rest for your soul if you take his yoke upon you and learn from him. And what you'll find is that he can be trusted. He can be trusted to manage the outcomes, how he sees fit, where your self-imposed burden is concerned. And that doesn't mean that you'll necessarily get what you want when you want it. But it does mean that he will deal with it, and you can count on him to do so. You can trust him. You can let go of trying to manage those outcomes and the tension that 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 brings to your life. I I saw this. I'm so grateful to God for my experience as a hospice chaplain. Because over and over again, you would see at the end of life all of these issues coming to a head, either with the person who's dying or with the family, And they are desperate to try and prevent something from happening that can't be happened, that can't be prevented. Or they're desperate to try and make something happen that they can't make happen. And it is agony. Because you feel responsible, but you don't have any control. I will always remember one of my first patients. She was a dear, godly woman. And she was on dialysis and had been for years, and she was in a lot of pain. She had other issues. And she just wanted to quit dialysis and be done. But her children were terrified to let her go. And so they placed this burden of responsibility on her to keep going through dialysis and to keep suffering through this pain, and yet she was in almost constant agony. She, she had a, a pain in her back that was nerve-associated and, and just couldn't be touched by medication or anything else. And, and I will always remember her because the only way she got any relief at all was to get up and walk around. So she'd sit down for a few minutes when we were talking, then she'd get up and walk around the living room. And she said, this is where I'm at, and I'm going to hurt my children if I let go, but I can't hardly stand not to let go. And I said, every worker in the field has a time when the day is done. And you've done what what you're you're supposed to do, and it's time to, to go home and rest. I said, this is your time. And you could just see the weight coming off of her. And her children were able to to let her go. I worked with them in that part too. But you could just see the weight coming off of her. And she lasted about two weeks more. We had a couple more visits. We prayed together. I did her funeral. She was wonderful. She was just a godly lady. But all she wanted to do was go home and not hurt her children. And he couldn't do both of them. And it was killing her. Well, we all do that in one way or another. We all do that in one way or another. And Jesus says, cut it out. Just lay it down, let me handle it. And you come and join me in my yoke. What this means fundamentally is that you give up on setting the agenda for your life. And you cast your cares on him and you let him set the agenda. And you give up trying to manage everything and everyone, which is frustrating you and annoying everyone else. Now, 
Here's what you're going to discover if you begin to do this. You are going to discover that the way of true holiness and love is also the way of peace and rest that leads to the healing of your soul. God is in the healing of your soul business. That's the 23rd Psalm. He restoreth my soul. And most of us are carrying around a load of pain that is all but crushing us. And sometimes that pain is caused by life circumstances like an illness or the death of somebody that's important in your life or a financial or a business reversal or a cherished dream that's shattered or put out of reach. But the main source of most of our pain is our relationships with other people. And even in the case of a painful life circumstance, often the worst part is not the event itself. It's how the significant people in your life react to that event that really tears you up. So just as an example, a man's business tanks, and he has to declare bankruptcy, which is bad enough. But what really tears him up is that his peers are gloating over his failure. Or his father is using it as an opportunity to say once again what a disappointment he is to his father. Or his wife has an affair and divorces him because her standard of living just went down, and she finds that intolerable, and she holds him in contempt. So let's think about how this works. Because God has designed human beings so that we need each other, all right? God has designed human beings so that we need each other. And in particular, we are meant to rely on each other to provide us with the things that we need in order to be mentally and emotionally healthy. And God commands us in Scripture to provide these things to each other from within the context of love. So, for instance, a husband needs to be respected. To be whole and at rest in himself and to be secure in his marriage, he needs to be respected. And so God commands wives to respect their husbands. That's his primary psychological need. A wife, her primary psychological need is to be loved in order to be whole and at rest, to be cared for and provided for and to be secure in that. And so what does God do? He commands husbands to live sacrificially and to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And when those two things are done, Marriage problems diminish and go away. Children need nurturing and kindness and a secure love. They also need loving discipline so that they can grow up and be uh, centered, secure, and capable of making a contribution to society. And so parents are commanded to provide these things for their children. Nobody wants their kid to grow up. You know, what's your goal for little Timmy? I want little Timmy to be a burden on society. Nobody says that, right? You want your kids to do well. You want them to flourish. And God commands you to give them the things that they need to flourish. Likewise, because that's costly, right? It's a lot of death to self in parenthood. So parents need to be honored for their costly sacrifices that they make in order to raise their children. And so God commands children to honor their father and their mother. We all need a place in a community of persons who make a place for us and receive us, and treat us with dignity, and esteem, and some level of care, and concern, and so God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and the whole world is your neighbor. If we are to develop spiritually in an appropriate way, we need another community 
a deeper, more loving, more accepting community of truth and love in which it is safe to face and to deal with all of our failures and all of our sins and all of our wounds. And so God said, I'm going to make a church for you guys. I'm going to put you together in a, in a community of followers of Christ. And, and then Christ says, I want you to exhibit towards each other the kind of unity and the kind of love that God the Father and God the Son enjoy with each other. This is, Jesus says, this is how everybody will know that you're my disciples. That you love one another. Father, in John 17, Father, I, I pray for them that they would have the kind of unity that I have with you and that you have with me. And, and I'm sure that you could think of other examples if you thought about it. Now, we can call these human networks, families and communities and churches, we can call these circles of sufficiency. And at many points in our lives, it is critical that these circles of sufficiency function well or we can be severely damaged, maybe for the rest of our lives. This is particularly important in early childhood with the family, right? Both of my kids are adopted, and one of the things you learn about when you go through adoption preparations is there's something called failure to thrive. And if an infant is not received and doesn't bond with somebody, that infant will simply die. There's no physical reason behind it. They just, they just stop eating and die because nobody has received them. You see, you see this a lot in, in orphanages overseas. The, the children are not, you know, there's so many of them and they're not properly cared for and they're not bonded with and, and they just, it's called failure to thrive, they just die. If they happen to survive, then they live the rest of their lives with something called reactive attachment disorder, where they're not capable of forming relationships with other people. And I, I watched one family in Sturgis that took four kids from the same mom who was a, a, a drug addict, and every one of those kids had reactive attachment disorder. And every one of those kids just leads an ongoing painful life. And as far as we know now, there's really nothing short of a miracle of God what can be done about it? So these circles of sufficiency are really important. And often these circles of sufficiency are shamefully violated. The, the husband systematically denies love to his wife. The wife systematically holds her husband in contempt. The parents fail to nurture and discipline the child. The child refuses to honor and perform the appropriate duties to the parent. We go to school and our peers are cruel to us and they bully us or they ostracize us or they mock us and tear us down. Our churches become not a place of love where we know and are known by others so that we can grow in the Lord, but instead become another place of vanity and egotism and rejection and judgmentalism and meanness. And all of this exacts a significant toll. It is the cause of deep, deep pain and anger and frustration and desperation. And when you fall into that, you become self-obsessed. Because that's what pain does to you. you. You hit your thumb with a hammer, good and hard, and see what you think for the next three days. You, all you're doing is thinking about that thumb. And anytime you go to pick something up, you're trying to pick it up without that thumb. Right? Because that's what pain does to you. It makes you self-obsessed. And so we begin to fixate on what, on what the people who God has told us, to, told to give important things to us, 
we begin to fixate on the fact they aren't giving that to us. And it's, it hurts so much. We hear all the time the voice of the, the critical parent or the unloving husband or the supposed friend who's savaging our souls. Often we turn in our pain and our self-obsession and we do to other people what they've been doing to us simply because in the moment that we do that, it makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. And we're not the weak victim in that moment. We're strong. And we're, we're dealing it out instead of taking it in. And that's how the cycle of all kinds of abuse perpetuates itself. Because hurt people hurt people. Now here's the message of the gospel. It doesn't have to be this way. God has a way of dealing with us that can heal us as well as stop us from doing the same kinds of things to other people and hurting them. This is, this is possible. God, God not only wants to, but can heal all of the damage that's done by the fact that your circles of sufficiency are screwed up. And instead of being good for you, they're bad for you. Your family was a disaster. Your marriage is a disaster. Your work environment is abusive. Your church is not doing anything that would help you grow spiritually. God wants to heal this, and he can. And this is possible because of a great spiritual truth which is revealed in Scripture almost on every page. And that truth is this. Whenever there is a failure of a natural system for delivering some good, particularly if that failure is as a result of human sin, God can be relied upon to provide what is necessary to you in some other way. You can, if, if, you, if you don't have something you need, and this is true for your body, and it's true for your soul, if you don't have something you need and it's not being provided to you in the ordinary way that God's ordained it, God will provide in another way. This was the message to the Israelites in the wilderness. Hey, there's no food out here. There's nothing to eat. There's no water. And God, what does he do? Manna. And, and, and then they're like, God, we're kind of sick of manna. Okay, here's quail. God, we're thirsty. Here's water from the rock. Every time they had a need, God was like, there, there's no way to meet this naturally, and, and the people are afraid. And God was like, no, I've got this. I'll just do a miracle. That's what he does. That, and that's why, that's why, for instance, um, Jesus says, you don't need to worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear or about your clothes and what you will put on. The pagans run after all that stuff. Your heavenly father knows that you need it. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything you need will be added to you. And this is true for everything that you need. It's true for your body. It's true for your mind, your mental health. It's true for your soul. So if somebody doesn't give you something you need, you can count on God to give you that thing. But you have to intentionally seek him and you have to obey him and you have to trust him in order for that to be made real in your life. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. So just as an example, and we'll, we'll close with this example, how this works. 
because I've experienced this and I'm sure you have too. Let's say you are haunted by the rejection of people who really had no good reason to reject you. You didn't really do anything to merit it, but their good opinion of you and their approval of you is very important to you. Maybe that person is your parent. Maybe it's someone at work who just has it in for you for no good reason. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. Well, let's just say that this is not a relationship that you can easily escape from for some reason. And over time, the cost of their antipathy just keeps rising. And they influence others against you. And they cut you down both to your face and behind your back. And they deliberately seek to wound you. And they're pretty good at it. And you make efforts to reconcile. You try and figure out what it is that you did that was so awful and apologize for it and correct it. But the explanations they give for why they hate you so much aren't true. They're just misleading. They think you're a worker of evil or you're stupid or you're deeply flawed. and You are just in agony. You can't even think about that person without almost physically flinching. And you basically operate on the assumption that you have the right to be treated with basic courtesy and respect as a person, and that's true. And you haven't done anything to merit this treatment, and that's true. And they owe you better than this, and that's true. And you aren't going to be able to be free of that tension and agony until they treat you right. That's not true. Because thinking you need them to change in order to be okay makes you their prisoner. Their sin has trapped you. So how do you get free? Well, as long as you believe in your own heart that you need them to think well of you or you can't be okay, you're going to stay trapped. But the minute you consciously cast yourself upon the Lord to provide you with the things you need, in this case, a sense of acceptance and approval or the protection of your reputation or something like that, the minute you say, I do not need the approval of this person, in order to be free. All the damage that they've done to me has occurred solely because I believed their good opinion and their acceptance of me was necessary for me to feel like I'm okay, but that's a false belief. That's actually a sin that the Bible calls vainglory. And I repent of that. And I'm going to walk in the truth with Jesus. To the extent that that mindset becomes real to you, and you let go of those outcomes, you are free. You will feel no more pain. To the extent that you still feel pain, that mindset is not real to you. Now, here's the really cool thing. This is a posture, not of weakness, but of tremendous strength. There's nothing weak about it. And from this posture of strength and sufficiency in God, Forgiving that person and blessing that person who hates you becomes not only possible, it's not even that difficult. You are actually in a place that Jesus describes and tells you that he wants you to be where you can do good to that person and seek their well-being, not in, a, in the vain hope that if you're nice enough to them, they'll quit hating you and and then resenting them because the more you're nice to them and they just take that as something they're owed and then they turn around and 
hate you more and, and you feel like a sucker, that, that's a recipe for disaster too. Instead, you will be able to do what is best for that person from within a place of the Lord's blessing and the Lord's abundance. And when you get there, you will be in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.17, fit or equipped for every good work. That can be your life. You can be the kind of person who is actually able to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who persecute you, to do good to those who despitefully use you. And it won't be hard. It will be natural. It will be completely natural. Because it will be the expression of God's sufficiency in your life and your ability to connect with him and receive grace and power from him in the midst of that difficult situation. That's actually, the, when that happens, you get people like John Rutherford, a, a Scottish uh, reformer in the 1600s, who was just shamefully abused by the government, and, and uh, it was a time of religious controversy in Scotland, and his whole life was one where he just walked through the fire, and it became so natural to him that he didn't even think about it. And he, and he would say, bless God, Bless God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. That was his life, hammer, file, and furnace. God's always hammering on him, or situations are. God's always filing and biting something out of him, and, and, and he's always walking in the furnace. And he says, I walk here in the sufficiency of God, and I bless God for this. Because what's happening then is the whole world looks at me and says, if I was there, I would be crushed by that. But he's not crushed by that. He's actually living a life, of, a life of peace and sufficiency and joy in the middle of that. How is that possible? And then you can say, let me tell you about my Jesus. You may think you know him, but I'm not sure you do. But you sure don't know him like this. And they will listen, and you will be credible. Where do you start? It's very simple. The first thing you got to do is take your eyes off of yourself and off of the situation that's causing you pain. And you just roll that burden onto the Lord. And you put your eyes on God. And you pray the prayer that the psalmist prayed in Psalm 109. But you, O oh God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake. Because your loving kindness is good, deliver me, for I am afflicted and needy. My heart is wounded within me. God will answer that prayer. Probably not by immediately solving the problem that you're dealing with, but rather by giving you the grace and the strength and the joy to stand in the midst of your circumstances and to be a person of total peace and joy. And he will look upon your affliction. And he will look upon your neediness. And he will heal your wounded and I've seen it happen. I've experienced it. And very often, it's not some long, drawn-out process. Very often, it's like turning on a light switch. And God will do it. You can trust him to. He promises to. Your God is sufficient.
and loves you. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock.